The most famous rocket launch in history took place 52 years ago this week. On July 16, 1969, three American astronauts climbed into the command module atop the massive Saturn V rocket as part of the Apollo 11 mission. And four days later, Neil Armstrong became the first man to step onto the surface of the moon with his classic line. Do you remember what it is? Say it with me. One small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Armstrong and his uh, fellow astronaut Buzz Aldrin were the only two men on that mission that had the opportunity to walk on the moon, but they were far from alone. There was a third astronaut. I did not know this guy's name until I looked into it. Uh, Michael Collins, who was in the control module uh, orbiting around the moon, waiting for them to rejoin him for the trip home. And then, of course, mission control in Houston was filled with hundreds of people that were there all to support these three astronauts. And that wasn't all. I read this week that NASA estimates that there were 400,000 people, amazing, 400,000 people that in some way contributed to this mission, from scientists to engineers to seamstresses to janitors and everything else you can imagine. Because a task as monumental as sending a man to the moon can't be done by one person, right? It requires a team. A group of all sorts of people with complementary skills, all focused on working together to accomplish this one goal. As Corey said just a moment ago, we're continuing our liftoff series today and talking about how the growth of the early church is kind of like the, the launch of a rocket. And we've been looking at the different factors that led the early church to experience liftoff and how those same factors can help us experience liftoff in our lives as well. And the factor we're talking about today is the need for a team, a team. As we look at this morning's passage, we're going to see that just as a rocket launch needs a team to be successful, the early church needed a team, and so do we. Our passage for this morning is found in Acts chapter 18. You can go ahead and turn there. I'm going to begin reading at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. May God bless the reading of his word. Twenty-five years ago, next month, Joanna and I moved to the Metroplex from Waco. Uh, We had been married about three months. Uh, We both had new jobs up here. She is a teacher, uh, me as a CPA. Uh, We just graduated from Baylor and we loaded up our U-Haul with hand-me-down furniture, if you've ever done that, and drove up to our new apartment, one-bedroom apartment over on Highway 360 in Grand Prairie. And we were super excited about starting our new lives together, but soon something happened that I was completely blindsided by and totally unprepared for. 
In the weeks that followed, I began to struggle deeply with loneliness. Now, don't get me wrong. Our marriage was awesome, and I was so excited about that. But you got to understand, we had just left a city where we had so many friends that we had shared our lives together with. We had a church that we had been invested in so deeply for years, and now it was just the two of us. A couple of months after we moved, uh, we took a trip uh, back to Waco to see friends and had an amazing weekend. And I'll never forget the moment that I walked back into our empty apartment here in Dallas. I'm not typically too much of an emotionally expressive guy, but I just began to weep. I just felt so lonely. Have you ever been there? Have you ever struggled with loneliness? If you've ever felt alone, ironically, you're not alone because loneliness is an epidemic in our country. Uh, I, I saw an article this week written in the Harvard Business Review by former Surgeon General Vivek Murthy who said this. He said, during my tenure as U.S. Surgeon General and my years caring for patients, the most common pathology I saw was not heart, di heart disease or diabetes. It was loneliness. I found that loneliness was often in the background of clinical illness, contributing to disease and making it harder for patients to cope and heal. Get this, loneliness and weak social connections are associated with a reduction in lifespan similar to that caused by smoking 15 cigarettes a day. Isn't that amazing? He closes with this, for our health, it is imperative, imperative that we address the loneliness epidemic quickly. COVID isn't the only disease that's impacting our nation. Murthy says there's an epidemic of loneliness just hidden beneath the surface. But fortunately, by God's grace, there's a vaccine. There's a cure. And that's what we're going to talk about today. You know, if anyone ever had a reason to feel lonely, I think it was Paul at the beginning of this week's passage. Let me give you a little bit of a summary of where he's been. We're going to put a map up here on the screen. Two weeks ago, uh, we were in Jerusalem for the Jerusalem Council. Paul and the other leaders of the church were talking about how to incorporate these Gentiles who were coming to Christ into the church. And then after that meeting, Paul and Barnabas went up here to Syria to Antioch. And then uh, Paul and Barnabas split up and Paul and Silas uh, made their way all through Galatia, modern day Turkey here. And they picked up a guy named Timothy along the way. And eventually they sailed across the Aegean Sea over here to modern day Greece. And they spread the gospel in places like Philippi and Thessalonica. And all along the way, they experienced such opposition. Everywhere they went, people were against them. In fact, in one place, uh, they were so mad at Paul, they actually stoned him and left him for dead, but he survived and just went on to the next place. And they continued to go through uh, what is now Greece. And in one place, uh, which was called Berea, uh, things got so dicey that the, the believers actually sent Paul away for his own safety. And they sent him down here to the coast to Athens. And Silas and Timothy stayed behind and they made plans to meet up uh, at a later time. So after spending some time alone in Athens, uh, Paul made this short trip over here to Corinth, and that's where we start today's passage. So think about that journey. Think about all of the travel, all of the opposition, and how Paul might be feeling at this moment. But then look what happens in verse 2. Verse 2 says, There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. And then verse 5, Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia. And then verse 7, Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. So let's zoom out for a minute. Paul's mission here in Corinth is to spread the gospel, 
Just like he does everywhere he goes, he spends his time telling people the good news about Jesus. But notice, he doesn't do it alone. As courageous and as driven and as talented and as anointed as Paul is, he needs others. Now, he could have said, hey, this whole journey I've been on, I had partners, things didn't work out well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this on my own for a while. But he didn't. Instead, he connected with Aquila and Priscilla, with Silas and Timothy, with Titius Justice, because Paul needed a team, and so do we. And that's the first big point of this morning's sermon, is that we need a team. We need a team. Now, I recognize that this idea goes uh, against our culture in a lot of ways. Way back in 1928, President Herbert, Herbert Hoover coined the term, term rugged individualism. Have you heard this phrase? Rugged individualism. The idea is that the, the, the model American is self-reliant. You know, there was kind of a romanticism about life on the American frontier and how hard it was. And so the, the person that was idolized was the one who could pull themselves up by their own bootstraps, so to speak, right? The person who doesn't need anyone else. The one who can take care of everything on their own. Now listen, I'm a fan of personal responsibility. I believe the Bible consistently teaches that each of us is responsible for our own actions. But friends, the idea that we can live a healthy life without being connected to others, the idea that we can be healthy alone, is just flat out wrong. It's just wrong. As, as poet John Donne said so beautifully, no man is an island entire of itself. We need a team. And it's not just poetry that tells us this. this. This idea is all throughout scripture. Starting very early, Genesis chapter 2, the second chapter in the whole Bible. Right after God created Adam, he said, it's not good for the man to be alone. What wisdom. It's not good for the man, for the woman to be alone. When we're alone, we're vulnerable. We're vulnerable. If you've ever watched the Discovery Channel, you know what happens to that one antelope that gets separated from the rest of the crowd, Right? The lions are hunting. It doesn't end well. And the same thing is true of us. When we're isolated, we are vulnerable to the attack of the enemy. When we're alone, we're not just <clears throat> vulnerable, we're weak. Anyone who's ever agreed to meet someone else early in the morning to exercise knows the power of a team, right? I mean, if you've decided on your own to get up at 5.30 in the morning and go run, it's awfully easy just to stay in that warm bed, isn't it? But if you know there's someone waiting for you and counting on you and you know that you're going to be doing it together it's powerful right it's not good for the man to be alone God says Paul knew that in order to be who God was calling him to be he needed a team around him encouraging him praying for him supporting him holding him accountable without a team without a community it's just not possible to be who God created you to be I really love the way Eugene Peterson puts this he says, there can be no maturity in the spiritual life apart from an immersion in and an embrace of community. And then this is my favorite part. I am not myself by myself. It's powerful, right? I am not myself by myself. Peterson's saying, you can't just catch a podcast now and then and expect to become spiritually mature. The only way to be the truest version of ourselves, the only way to grow up into the people that God has in mind for us is to immerse ourselves in Christian community. We need a team. Here's the problem, though. It's hard. 
being a part of a team is super hard. It takes work. You have to compromise. You have to put up with people's messiness. You have to put up with all their quirks and their brokenness. And by the way, they have to put up with yours. But even if you're willing to put in the work, sometimes it's just hard to find, right? And it's hard to, to, to find the time even to make community in our culture, especially where we're so over busy and, and you've, got, you've got a job to worry about, you've got kids to worry about, you've got laundry and a thousand other responsibilities. You think, how in the world am I going to find community? How in the world am I going to find a team? So we find ourselves a lot of time just in a quandary. We know we should have a team. We know we need a team, but where do we find it? How do we do it? The good news is that God builds a team. That's the second main point today. We need a team, but God builds a team. And I love the way this works in this passage. I I talked earlier about the different people that Paul teamed up with, but I kind of skimmed over how it happened. When you look more closely, what you see is that God's fingerprints were all over this team. Look back again at verse 2. Verse 2 says, There Paul met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all the Jews to leave Rome. So here in Corinth, all alone, who does Paul meet? He meets a couple named Aquila and Priscilla. Verse 3 says they were tent makers or leather workers, just like Paul was. And think for a minute about what the chances are of this meeting. Let's go back to the, the map for just a minute. So Aquila is from a place called Pontus, up here on the Black Sea here in modern-day Turkey. And the text says that for some reason that we don't know, he and his wife move hundreds of miles all the way over here to Rome. But then Emperor Claudius issues this edict that says all the Jews have to leave Rome. So they don't go back to Pontus. They go over here and settle in, you guessed it, Corinth. Just exactly where God knew that Paul would desperately need some encouragement. Isn't that just like God? Isn't that just like his grace that just when Paul needed a team the most, God worked in a beautiful way to give him what he needed? God provided Aquila and Priscilla. And as I mentioned earlier, eventually Silas and Timothy uh, came back safely to Paul. And then he provided Titius Justus, a worshiper of God, the text says, who lived right next door to the synagogue where Paul had been trying to convince the Jews. God was building a team. But he didn't stop there. I, one of my favorite parts about this passage is the surprise that happens next. You know, Paul's been spending his time in the synagogue, as was his practice, uh, trying to tell people about Jesus. But over and over again, they rejected him. Verse 6 says, they opposed Paul and became abusive. And Paul eventually got so frustrated, the text says that he shook out his clothes in protest. F.F. Bruce said it was like he didn't want even a speck of synagogue dust to stick to his robe. And he said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I'm innocent of it. Don't you wish Paul would just say what he's thinking now and then? So, so bold. I think it's pretty safe to say that Paul is discouraged by the response of the Jews in the synagogue, right? I think if you were to ask Paul, hey, what are the chances uh, of someone from the synagogue becoming a believer? I think he would have put it at zero. But look at what happens in verse 8. Crispus the synagogue leader and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. This is amazing to me. If you read the passage past, you can kind of skip over this. But, but Paul is frustrated and discouraged and so frustrated that he storms out of the synagogue. And two verses later, we find out that Crispus, the leader of the synagogue, became a believer along with his entire family. Only God could do this, right? 
Only God could build a team out of Paul, an itinerant preacher, out of Aquila and Priscilla, a couple who moved all over the place and just happened to be at Corinth at just the right time, out of Titius Justus, a worshiper of the Lord who just happened to live right next door to the synagogue, and then Crispus, who was the leader of the synagogue, where Paul had given up all hope. It's so beautiful to me. It shouldn't be surprising, though, you know, because this is what God does. Psalm 68 says, God sets the lonely in families. I love that verse. God sets the lonely in families. It's what God does. He takes diverse and disconnected people and turns them into a family. Look at what Jesus did with the disciples and his other followers. He took some fishermen, a tax collector, a political revolutionary, a group of women, one of whom had been previously possessed by a demon and a couple of others who were independently wealthy, and he turned this group into a family. And closer to home, look at what God has done right here at VRBC. God has taken people from literally all across the globe and turned us into a family from five different continents from my count. I don't think we have anybody from Australia or Antarctica yet, but five different continents by my count, rich and poor, young and old, Democrat, Republican, married and single, black, white, Latino, East Asian, South Asian, and he's made us into a family. Praise God. Diverse and disconnected people passionately following Jesus. What? Together. Together. God is so good. God is so good. And by his grace, he builds a team. A team called the church. And by that same grace, you and I get to be a part of it. So, Paul, who was all alone in verse 1, by verse 8, now has a team. A growing team built of Aquila and Priscilla, Silas and Timothy, Titius Justus, Crispus, all his family, and many of the Corinthians. But God's so good. He doesn't stop there. God knows that, that Paul could still get discouraged. And so look what, look what God does in verse 9. Verse 9. One night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you. And no one is going to attack you and harm you. Because I have many people in this city. I love this so much. God's not satisfied with this small little band that he's gathered. He has something much bigger in mind. It's like he's saying, Paul, you don't even have any idea what's coming. I know you can't see it now, but I have people all over this city. I have people all over this area, and they don't know it yet, but soon they're going to turn to me and they're going to find life, and they're going to be a part of this ever-growing family of faith, this team called the church. And that brings us to the last point of this sermon. You know, God builds a team, but in his grace, he gives us a role to play as well. God builds the team, but we invite the team. We invite the team. Let's go back to verse 9 again. I'll read it one more time. It says, one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, don't be afraid, keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you because I have many people in this city, he says. God builds the team. And every great once in a while, God invites someone to the team directly. That's what happened to Paul, right? Paul came to Christ because he had a vision of the Lord Jesus. And that still happens in our uh, world today, most often among Muslim people, where many are turning to Christ after seeing Jesus in a dream or a vision. But as wonderful as that is when it happens, it's still the exception. Because 99.99% of the time, when someone joins the team, 
when someone makes the decision to follow Jesus, it's because someone who's already on the team invited them to be a part of it. And that's just what the Lord says to Paul in this vision. He says, look, Paul, I already have the people for the team. It's time for you to go out and bring them in. Don't be afraid. Don't be silent. Keep on speaking. Keep on telling them who I am. Keep on telling them what I've done. Tell them I love them. Tell them Jesus died for them. Tell them I have a wonderful plan for their lives. Invite them to the family. Invite them to the team. Friends, I don't know about you guys, but this this radically reshapes the way I think about evangelism. Sometimes, you know, my natural view of evangelism is kind of like when I had to sell chocolate bars for a, a fundraiser for my middle school choir. Man, I think it's, the statute of limitations is up. I can say this. I hated it. I hated it. I had this little spiel. Uh, I, I said to people about how great the chocolate was. But man, if they, if, if they knew the truth, if they could hear what was happening in my head, they would have heard something more like, do you want to buy some overpriced chocolate? It's actually not very good. And I wouldn't buy it if I were you, but my middle school choir director put a big guilt trip on me. And so here we are. What do you say? You ever felt that way about evangelism? Gosh, I don't really know about all this, but I feel guilty. Somebody told me I was supposed to. But what a difference it makes to think of it this way, right? Jesus is saying, look, the team members are already out there. They're already there. There are many people in this city who I already know are going to follow me and be a part of the team. All you have to do is go invite them. How might that change the way you view your office? If you heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. Keep on speaking. I have many people in your company. How might it change the way you viewed your neighborhood? If you, said, if you heard Jesus say, don't be afraid. Share my story. I have many people on your street. How might it change the way our church views our community? If we together heard Jesus say, don't be afraid, church. Keep on telling people the good news. Keep on telling people my story because I have many people in Valley Ranch. I have many people in Capel. Friends, we are not middle schoolers driven by guilt and obligation to sell people overpriced chocolate. We are broken sinners who have been rescued, who have been redeemed, who have been invited to be a part of a team that we had no business joining, a team where we have life, and now we get to tell others the good news that they can join up as well. It reminds me of a story from the Old Testament book of 2 Kings. Uh, Here's the, the situation. This is in the time of the prophet Elisha, and there's a group called the Arameans who were attacking the Israelites. Uh, they were laying siege to an Israelite city, and there was no way in or out. And because uh, they, ha- they had the whole city under siege, uh, they couldn't get any food into the city. So there was this horrible famine. And I was wondering how bad the famine was. And then I read in 2 Kings 6, it says, The siege lasted so long that a donkey's head sold for 80 shekels of silver. I'm going to be honest, I don't know what a donkey's head is supposed to sell for. I don't know, but that sounds bad, right? 80 shekels of silver. Anyway... They're under siege. They're, the, the text says there were four men with leprosy, a skin disease that caused them to be isolated from the rest of the people by law. So they were outside the city gate and these four guys had no food. They were about to starve to death. So they made a bold choice. Second uh, Kings 7 says, they, they said to each other, why should we stay here and just die? If we stay here, we have no hope. Now, if we go into the city, they said, we're gonna starve because there's no food there. So here's what we're gonna do. We're going to go turn ourselves into the enemy. They may kill us too, but they also may spare us. And if they do, we'll live. 
So that's what they did. They went over to the enemy camp. And when they walked in, they saw something amazing. The text tells us that the Lord had caused the Arameans to hear a sound that they thought was the Israelites attacking. And they all panicked and every single one of them fled the camp. So when these four lepers walked into the Aramean camp, they found it deserted. They walked in a tent and they saw more food and drink than they could eat in a year. And so they sat down and they had a feast. But after they had their fill, they had a realization. Look at what verse 9 says. Then they said to each other, what we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news and we're keeping it to ourselves. Let's go once and report this to the royal palace. Friends, for those of us who follow Jesus, that is our story. We were lost without hope. We were under siege by our enemy. We may not have had a physical disease like leprosy, but we had the spiritual disease of sin. We may not have been in a physical famine, but we were on the road to spiritual starvation. We were under attack by our enemy, but praise God, he intervened. He won the battle without us even having to lift a finger. Jesus won the battle and the enemy fled, and now we have the opportunity to sit down at this feast. But like the lepers said, this is good news. This is a day of good news. Let's go at once and tell the others. Let's not keep this good news to ourselves. God has rescued us. He has invited us to a feast that we don't deserve. Let's not keep that good news to ourselves, church. As we close, here's the takeaway. Our response to God's gracious gift of being included on the team, our response to this good news that we've been invited to be a part of the family is to Two things, embrace and extend. Embrace the team and extend the team. First of all, embrace the team. Recognize that we desperately need a team. And by his grace, God is building a team called the church. And we don't have to live our lives alone. God sets the lonely in families. So embrace the team. Take relational risks. Reach out to others. Be intentional. Make worship a priority. Make Grow Group a priority. Invite people into your home. Share meals together. Invest in Christian friendships. Invest in Christian community. Embrace the team, church. And as you embrace the team, extend the team. Remember that God has many people in our schools, our offices, our neighborhoods. And we have the privilege of sharing the good news that they're invited. Extend the team. Pastor Gordon McDonald tells the story of a time he visited an Alcoholics Anonymous group. He says, one morning Kathy joined us for the first time. One look at her face caused me to conclude that she must have been Hollywood beautiful when she was younger. Now, her face was swollen, her eyes red, her teeth rotting. Her hair looked unwashed, uncombed for who knows how long. I've been in five states the past month, she said. I've slept under bridges on several nights, been arrested, assaulted, robbed. Now she was weeping. And between the sobs, she said, I don't know what to do. I don't want to be homeless anymore, but I can't stop drinking. I can't stop. McDonald says, next to Kathy was a woman named Marilyn, sober for more than a dozen years. 
She reached with both arms toward Kathy and pulled her close, so close that Kathy's face was pressed to Marilyn's chest. McDonald says, I was close enough to hear Marilyn speak quietly into Kathy's ear. Honey, you're going to be okay. You're with us now. We can deal with this together. All you have to do is keep coming. You hear me? Keep coming. Keep coming. And then Marilyn gently kissed the top of Kathy's head. McDonald says, I was awestruck. The simple words, the affection, the tenderness. How Jesus-like. Church, we're Kathy. That's us. We were desperate and alone, and Jesus has wrapped his arms around us. He has pulled us close, and he has welcomed us to the team. He has welcomed us to the family. And now may we, the welcomed ones, may we be like Marilyn. Better yet, may we be like Jesus, and may we extend our arms to our community and wrap them around all those around us and extend this beautiful team called the church. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, thank you for including us. God, we didn't deserve it. We did not deserve it. We were desperate and alone and hopeless and helpless until you intervened. And now you have won the victory without us even having to fight the battle. And so, Lord Jesus, I pray that each person here would embrace the team that you have invited us to and that we would extend the team to all those uh, in our lives as well. Speak to us through the power of the Holy Spirit. Give us the courage to follow where you're leading. In Christ's name we pray, amen.